take your Bible with me and turn to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, we are going to be looking at this psalm uh, this morning, and I am as always thankful for the opportunity to open up the Word of God. It is a privilege uh, to study the Word of God and to hear what He has for us. While you're turning there to Psalm 110, let me give you a little information about this psalm in particular. Uh, The psalm we're going to be looking at is actually the most well-quoted psalm in our entire New Testament. Verse 1 alone is quoted specifically over 25 times and is referenced even more. And as we're going to read through this psalm in a few moments, it's not going to take us long to realize why. This is a very important psalm, and this is a psalm that is categorized under the description of messianic psalm. So this is a psalm written by King David, where he is almost acting as a poetic prophet prophesying the future Messiah. And he's going to give us a few descriptions about who Messiah is and some roles that he's going to fulfill for his people. Now, Martin Luther was fascinated by this psalm. And I think Martin Luther liked the mystery of it, the the sort of unlocking the puzzle through Scripture. He wrote 120 pages of commentary alone on Psalm 110. So he was very excited about this. And another commentator said, Psalm 110, to me, is the most fascinating psalm in the entire collection. Well, by way of overview, our psalm is going to have two main sections. The first will describe the role of the Messiah, as you see on the screen behind me, as the great king. And the second will be described as the great high priest. Now, as we read our Old Testaments, we do not have to go long to find a priest or a king who messes up. Doing even one of these roles uh, effectively proved impossible. Yes, for even the great King David. So the idea that there would be one who would come in the future who could accomplish both of these ministries perfectly is truly overwhelming. And it does lead us as the reader to believe the fact that this must be more than just a man whom we're talking about here. And uh, in our scripture reading today, and I appreciate Dylan reading that for us, we read about a confrontational discussion that Jesus had with the Pharisees uh, regarding their understanding of who Messiah was. And he challenged them, um, and he challenged their understanding. He actually asked them the question, who do you think about the Christ? What do you think about him? Whose son is he? And of course, they are going to be very filled with pride that this is going to be someone from King David's line. And they're going to believe that they themselves, as keeping the law as they saw it, are going to be filled with pride and arrogance. But he pushes back that he would just be a mere descendant. This culture, it's built on honor. It's built on reverence, specifically for the father figure. And so the fact that the great King David, now remember here, this is not just a mere fisherman or a mere stonemason. This is the greatest king that Israel has ever had. Jesus asks them, well, if he is his son, How does he call him Lord? Or how does he humble himself under this coming Messiah? And of course, this is going to fight against their preconceived notions. David's writing under divine inspiration. 
And he is humbling himself. So, again, this revelation is key to Jesus' message. And actually, it's key to our New Testament. All three of the synoptic gospels record this conversation from Jesus. Because it's so important to understanding who Messiah is. So let's look at this psalm. We're going to read it. We're going to make a few comments. And we are going to see today how Jesus Christ perfectly fulfills both of these ministries for us today. So let us read Psalm 110, beginning in verse 1, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So our psalm today Our first ministry that Jesus, we're going to see, fulfills is that Messiah Jesus is our great king. Now, we in America uh, are built on the foundation that we do not need a king, specifically that we fought a war about that. However, when we come to the Bible, when we come to realizing Jesus, we need to confess and recognize that he is king. He is in control, and his will and way will be accomplished But this psalm is interesting. This psalm shows the unity that God the Father has with Messiah, the love that he has for him. And actually, in these first three verses, we're going to look at three promises that God, Yahweh, Jehovah, makes to this future Messiah. Now, it's almost as if David is overhearing this conversation. And of course, under divine inspiration, he is. And he records it. So what's our first promise that Yahweh makes to his messianic son? First of all, we find that God will defeat Messiah's enemies. Look back in verse 1 again. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So again, we're confronted with their unity. And the Father is promising that he will utterly destroy the enemies who rise up against his Messiah, God is promising that he will defeat them in such a way they will be put so low that it's as if they are going to be an Ottoman for the Messiah to rest his feet upon. Now that description earlier about being at the right hand, this is something that we're familiar with as Bible readers. This is a a phrase that comes up quite often. This is a place of honor. This is a place of worship, place of reverence. And Messiah is seated at the right hand of the Father. It points to Messiah's divine position. And actually, I think the Apostle Paul takes influence from contemplating Jesus in that elevated spot. Listen to Paul's words when describing the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in in Philippians chapter 2. He says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him, very well-known phrase here, and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yes, this, this Messiah, Jesus Christ, has been elevated, and we get to worship him in all of his glorious splendor. And that, that description, footstool, that's something that our New Testament writers grab a hold of, and they actually expound upon several different ways in our New Testament. They do apply it to Jesus Christ, and they talk about how the Lord has made the enemies his footstool. Listen to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, and he's being very bold, very confident here when he's speaking to the crowds. He says this, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you are yourselves seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And he concludes this. Let therefore all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And they're not very pleased when they hear his final application to his sermon there whatsoever. But as we contemplate our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with the Father, you know, we have to ask ourselves the question... Are we submitting to him as king? I don't necessarily just mean king of the cosmos, king of the planets and all the starways and galaxies. I mean more personal, king of our lives, king of our hearts. Are there things in our lives that will one day be trampled underneath the sun's feet and put into that footstool? Are we wasting our time by bringing little glory to Christ when we could be trying to bring as much glory as possible by being infatuated with sin. This is the challenge that we see here. We realize that we do serve a king and God will defeat his enemies. So let us take inventory of our lives and as we read through scripture, cast off the works of darkness and acknowledge Jesus as king over all. But there's a second promise that the father gives to his messianic king he promises to extend his kingdom and this is hopeful for us who are followers of the king look at verse 2 the lord sends forth from zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies now our bibles put that phrase your mighty scepter second the hebrew was going to put it first and it puts it there for emphasis A scepter finds its historical roots in ancient Egyptian dynasties where the pharaoh had sometimes even a very tall staff, taller than himself. And it was a symbol of his kingly power and authority. Different generations and dynasties following that will take up that mantle, like the Greek city-states or the Roman emperor, and even into more modern Christendom and secular monarchies. King Charles has a pretty fancy scepter that he holds himself even today. But this, this idea in our Bible is probably the most famous story of a royal scepter comes from uh, Queen Esther. Well, she's in Persia. Of course, you're not allowed to go before the king unless he summons you. Well, she does, and she goes before him. And what does he do in order to accept her? He extends his royal scepter to her, letting the guards know not to arrest her and kill her in that moment. And uh, we actually read that she walks up to that scepter and touches the top of it, thanking him for his act of grace. That's in Esther chapter 5. 
But here, in verse 2, this is not a man-made scepter. This is not a scepter of a man-made empire or kingdom. No, no, no. This scepter is a symbol of Yahweh's authority. And this kingdom extends all the way from Zion itself and will continue to expand until, as we read there, he rules in the midst of your, or of his, Enemies. Now that sounds like a pretty basic description. Yes, of course, the king would rule in the midst of his enemies. But the word there for rule, our English translators helped us out by um, uh, cleaning up the language here. This is a very descriptive term. And rule here almost means a complete total domination where there is, there is no perspective. There is no room for sharing your opinion with this, this dominating king. Uh, it's, it's that type of a rule, a totalitarian idea. And then in the midst there, they also clean it up. This is the word for entrails or guts. So what David here is writing here is that he will have complete control, not just of their minds or of their environments, but of who everyone truly is in their innermost being. And that's the expectation. He is king, and Yahweh is promising that he will be king over his enemies. Third promise in these first three verses is that the Father will give his king a great Army. Let's keep tracking through here. Verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now, this is the most confusing phrase in all of uh, this psalm. There's some descriptions here that we're going to look at side by side. But as we begin here, we do see the, the people who are serving in his army. Now, verse 3 is not meaning necessarily the, the salvation experience. These are people who are following the king already. And they are, as we see there, willingly and freely offering. Offering themselves to do whatever the king may do. Later on, we are going to find that there's some descriptions here that could point to these people. They could also point to the king. But in history, we are fascinated by people, and even in our own lives, who sacrifice willingly for others. Militaristically, we are moved by stories like this. Like in ancient Greece, the 300 Spartans, who knowing that they're going to die, hold off the mighty Persian army as long as they can so that the rest of the army and other Greek city-states can escape. We are moved by their sacrifice. And then even into American history, the 200 Texans who fought at the Alamo against a Mexican army of upwards of 6,000 soldiers, knowing, again, that they were going to die, but stood on principle and uh, had the opportunity to escape if they wanted to, but didn't take that chance because they believed in what they were fighting for, were moved by these types of examples. Well, here, the servants of the king do just that if their sovereign would call them to do that. Their uniform, we actually read a little bit about their garments, described here as being holy. And these are provided by their king himself. They are called to reflect his holiness, his righteousness. Um, And this is not done subconsciously. Think about our own lives. We're not living righteous lives or holy lives just passively. No, this takes... This takes intentionality, and it takes focus and extreme effort. But for these followers, nothing is too great for them to do 
or to give to their king. Because of his grace, they are prepared, they are ready, and they are strong for the day of battle. And then those last couple phrases there. If we understood those descriptions, and I'll read it again, from the womb of the morning, the dew of the youth will be yours, we could understand that to refer to his followers. And it could describe their garments, that as they go forth into battle, they are brilliant, they are gloriously beautiful, and almost they give the followers of the king a vigor as they fight for him. I personally think it refers more to the king himself, who, as he is himself leading his people into battle, he does not tire, he does not require a noonday rest, or at the end of the battle have to recuperate his strength. No, 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 he is filled with divine energy and leads in righteousness as he empowers his people to go throughout the world. One commentator was was musing about this passage, and he thought, I wonder if in Scripture we see an example of this great army. And of course, you probably, if I gave you all the guess, which book this may show up in, the book of Revelation is going to be one example. Well, he uh, recorded this passage in Revelation chapter 12. Listen if this sounds familiar. And they have conquered by the blood of the Lamb, And by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. You see, it is imperative that we recognize Jesus and his position as king over the world, king over our lives. Uh, But that's not the only position he fulfills. We're going to look now at the second position, the second half of our psalm, where Messiah Jesus is our great High priest. Let me read these three verses and then we'll break down some of these descriptions. Uh, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll pause there actually. Now, this combination of priest-king is never recognized or actualized in the Old Testament. In fact, we can think maybe of some Old Testament stories, at least one, where a king tried to fulfill the role of priest, and that was only met with judgment and punishment. I'm thinking of King Saul, who was a little too impatient for Samuel to show up and offer sacrifices following a battle that the Lord had delivered uh, into the hands of Israel. And we know that because of that action, Um, The kingdom was ripped from King Saul's hands. And even David himself would not offer these types of sacrifices, but would ask the high priest or ask other priests to do these things for him. Yet as we continue to learn more about Messiah, we find that he is, in fact, an eternal priest. You saw that description. You are a priest forever. And then we do read that description after the order of Melchizedek. Let me read for you from Genesis chapter 14 where this character shows up. Genesis chapter 14, Abram has gone and he has fought a battle where a local king in the area has attacked his people. And he has carried away some family members, some some servants, and a lot of wealth. Well, Abram goes to get it back. And he is victorious on his return journey. This man, Melchizedek, shows up. And let me read it for us. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth 
of everything. I don't particularly believe that this is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. Some do think that. I think that this is a unique character who is a beautiful type of Christ, who gives us an example uh, of what the ministry of the Messiah is going to do. And the ministry here is far more complex than I think especially the Jews in Jesus' time thought it was going to be. If you think of the zealots, if you think of even the fishermen who were just overwhelmed at the annoyance of being ruled by Rome. We know this because this has been repeated time and time again. They are looking for that king, and they were content to stop there with their Messiah fulfilling a role. But God had a greater plan for them. And aren't we thankful um, sometimes in life that God's plans are even greater than our well-intentioned understanding? When we think of our lives, we want to do things in the way that brings honor and glory to God. We want things to happen his way. But maybe there's been times in your life when God brings a situation to fruition that you look back and think that was more incredible than I could have even thought to ask. Or the way God worked was was more gracious than I thought was even possible. See, that's how God works in our lives. The Father here is so gracious and kind. His plan was not just to provide a conquering king, But he provides an eternal priest for us when we desperately need it. The writer of Hebrews, and if you're looking for a New Testament book to help unpack and really explain a lot of these Old Testament descriptions, the book of Hebrews is going to be a great place to go. I'm not going to read for you this entire section, uh, but Hebrews chapter 7 is where the author there is actually talking about how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that great high priestly description. And he does it in a way that he lets us know that Jesus Christ could not be in a priest from Aaron's line. And we understand that because he's not from the tribe of Levi. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. So technically, he can fulfill that kingly role. But if you're looking at merely from our understanding, Jesus will not be allowed to be Messiah. However, it is because of this passage that he is not a priest from Aaron's line, but from Melchizedek's line, that the author says this. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, meaning that they were made priests by their their lineage. But this one was made a priest with an oath, and by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. You see, the Father doesn't bend rules like sometimes we're tempted to do with our friends or grandchildren. As Pastor talks about feeding his granddaughters uh, gummy worms, is that what it is? Is it a Swedish fish? Yes. The Father does not act in that way. He can't just sweep sin under the rug and overlook it because he is gracious and kind. No, no. The Father is legally bound to judge sin and to operate in the way that he has sent because he is just and righteous. So when Jesus Christ becomes the great high priest, he can do it because he is from the order of Melchizedek. These are the things that we need to understand about 
his priestly role. First of all, his priesthood is irrevocable. It will not be taken back. We saw that first phrase. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Now, I'm not saying that we should be betting people here or gambling people, but if you were going to bet money on something, you can bet money on the fact that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Okay, this is never going to change. And what is he committing himself to? That you are a priest forever. Now, there's two things in this phrase. You, meaning Messiah. He's speaking of Messiah here, Jesus Christ. He is going to be a priest. And secondly, he is going to be a priest forever. There will never be another high priest for God's people. There will never be one who succeeds Jesus Christ as our high priest for eternity. He will be fulfilling this role as priest. And if we had to ask ourselves a question, well, how broad does this priesthood expand? Well, in Acts chapter 15, Jesus' followers were discussing that exact thing. Essentially, was this going to include Gentiles as well as God's chosen people, the Israelites? Well, Acts chapter 15 reveals for us that they recognize that, yes, this is for Gentiles as well. And it continues on from there through the rest of our New Testament. Yes, Jesus' priesthood is irrevocable. But secondly, his priesthood is invincible. Let's look at these last three verses, 5, 6, and 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the water. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, if I took that out of context and I asked you to describe or tell me what you think this is describing, we would probably say things like a warrior or a king who is leading his troops into battle. We don't really get the picture here of a priest. Maybe you imagine white robes, religious ceremonies, and a general peaceful person like I do when I think of a priest. However, our great high priest is far from passive. In verse 1, and we're not going to go back and look at it in detail, but when we find the Messiah seated at the right hand of the Father, we and his enemies should not take this as his disinterest in the situation or his inability to do something that he wants. No, no. Rather, it should fill his enemies with terror and bring joy to his people. And why? Well, because as we saw here in verse 5, there is a day coming in which the king priest will make himself known. In verse 5, David described it as the day of his wrath. But other biblical passages, like Revelation chapter 6, describe it as the wrath of the Lamb. And we're not going to get into the great details of this right now. But this is a day that is great and is terrifying. And David gives us a few markers of what we should look for about this day of wrath. First, in verse 5, we see that Messiah, Jesus, will shatter kings with overwhelming strength. That is a militaristic idea here. Absolutely. Second, in verse 6, we see that he will judge the nations. And the standard there is going to be holiness. It's going to be righteousness. They will be weighed in the balance. And we know 
that apart from his justification, they will be found wanting. Third, he fills the nation with corpses. Yes, this does anticipate the battle of Armageddon in Revelation chapter 19. Fourth, he will crush chiefs. Now, you may be looking at a different version than I am, and there may be a little bit of a different word there for you. This sounds like a repeat of the first one, where he will shatter kings. Uh, but a better idea here would actually be that he, he uh, crushes heads. And this calls our attention back to the book of Genesis, our first book of the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 3, where after Adam and Eve have sinned and they have plunged creation under the curse, under the fall, God comes to them and lets them know in his grace that their sin is not the end of the story. That's not the last page and it closes now in eternal judgment. No, he lets them know that he has had a plan and now that plan is enacted that one day one would come to crush the head of the serpent. And yes, he'll pay a price. His heel will be bruised. But we understand that the victory will be his. One commentator described it like this. The head of the old serpent and all who follow in his lying, deceitful, and evil path will be crushed by the thorn-crowned head of the risen king priest. That is something that should fill God's followers with hope. And then fifth and finally, we read here sort of an interesting turn. He will drink from the brook by the way. I love how David concludes this. this. This psalm has been filled in the last couple verses with a lot of noise. There's been a lot happening. There's been verses about battle and war and death and, and, and corpses being thrown different places. And here, at the end, I almost imagine David here thinking through this. And maybe David's even imagining Messiah walking by himself quietly while the dust settles behind him. And what does the victorious king priest do before he returns to Zion's majestic gates? Well, he, he peacefully leans over a brook and, and takes a sip of refreshing cool water because he is completely in control and he is victorious. And then we see that, that last phrase, therefore he, God, will lift up his head in victory and in glory. Now we can be certain as David was, that our Messiah, Jesus Christ, accomplishes these two roles and does it perfectly for us. So as we come to a conclusion of this, this messianic psalm, there is a time for application. And we understand that a response is required when we come to Scripture. We can't just walk away unchanged. Uh, so I think a good first thing for us is to confess that Jesus is our Messiah now, there's a lot that can be taken here. Yes, salvation is immediately in, in view. We must confess that Jesus is Lord. But even beyond that, we think of the zealots. I've mentioned them, the Pharisees, even the common fishermen. They had some preconceived ideas about what Messiah should do. And as they heard Jesus teach and preach, they were confronted uh, with the fact that he had a slightly different understanding of what his job was. Now, until they listened and submitted their ideas to his, people like Peter were very frustrated, and that's at best. Others were completely lost, and like the rich young ruler, they, they left, they walked away from Jesus. We have to confess that Jesus is Messiah and not come to him with a list of requirements almost that Jesus must fulfill or a checklist, but like David, 
who humbly looked forward into the future under divine inspiration, submitted himself to this Messiah. And secondly, when we do get there, well, what's the natural application from there? Well, we submit and commit ourselves to that joyful service. Now, I will admit, it is easy for me to stand here and say something like this. You need to commit your lives to whatever Jesus calls you to, because it sounds good and it preaches really, really well. But when we understand that our world is plagued by sin and that we have trials that we endure, that's a little bit of a different thing from a Sunday experience to a Monday reality. Well, if we do confess that Jesus is king, we look around and if you're like me, we long for his rule to be visible. Even today, we long for it to be complete. What are you waiting for? Just make it happen. And there are times when we can find ourselves in a state of worry, anxiety, and yes, even brokenness because of our despair of what we see. Flip on the news over the past week and you'll see brokenness in our world. And it's at that point that Jesus' role as high priest comes into the equation. You see, he originally took our brokenness. He took our sin. He took our need. And he bore them upon himself on the cross. And now he stands before the Father and he bears his sacrifice to him. And then he gives us the grace necessary to accomplish any task that he sets before us. So what do we do with something like that? Well, each of us has various things that the Lord has gifted us with, that the Lord has called us to. And I think with this reality of our Messiah as king and priest... We go forth in confidence that he is victorious. We're going to close in prayer here in a moment. And we're going to sing a few hymns testifying to Jesus' position as king, as sovereign, and the fact that we truly are complete in what he does for us. So it's my prayer that we continue to faithfully endure as a church. We admit that sin is real. The trials are abundant, but we serve a victorious king and are served by an eternal high priest. So let's trust him as we live on mission together, even this week. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for who he is, that he is Messiah, he is sovereign, he is king. Lord, we need your grace and we need your faithfulness. So thank you that you are closer than a brother and you've promised to never leave us nor forsake us. I do pray for this sweet church body that you've brought together and ask that you would make yourself evidently clear in our lives even this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.